back on air. Hello and welcome to Listeners New and Old as we celebrate reaching episode 10 of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. We've been sidetracked and seduced by Ian Chappell. We've been regaled with his tales of Ramsbottom, the Australian captaincy and World Series cricket. But now we must return to the job in hand and refocus our attention on our one Ashes Test Wonders. Graham Barlow and Mick Malone's tales will be told soon enough, but today we are going to look at two Australian fast bowlers, one from New South Wales and one from Queensland, who burst onto the scene at a young age, topping the wicket-taking charts in their respective first seasons of Shield cricket. And both were left ruining ill fortune as injuries blighted their one and only Ashes Test match. I was very worried about my heel. I didn't know what, what to do, whether to pull out or whether to play or what to do. And I thought I'd, I'd, I would play. And um, yeah, certainly wasn't an easy decision anyway. I just didn't want to let my body down. I got to know Bill pretty well, Bill Laurie, uh, when I was playing with Victoria. And I just didn't want to let him down, that's all. Ross Duncan there, who played in the fifth test of the 1970-71 series. We'll hear more from Ross later as he takes us through his cricketing journey and his shot at Ashes glory at the MCG in 1971. But before we do, let's turn our attention to the scarcely believable story of Pat Crawford, who played grade cricket for Petersham Marrickville and Shield cricket for New South Wales. Pat played all of his four test matches in 1956, including his one Ashes test at Lord's in June of that year. He played only two full seasons of Shield cricket, 1954-55 and the following season, 1955-56, and he was the leading wicket-taker in both. In 54-55, he took 25 Shield wickets at 12.96 in only three matches. These exploits led to East Lanks recruiting the paceman in the Lancashire League in the summer of 55. But as things turned out, he may have wished they hadn't. The Australian journalist and writer Gideon Hay wrote about Pat in the summer game, his superb history of Australian cricket between 1949 and 1971. Pat effectively disappeared after playing his final games for Marrickville and New South Wales in 57-58, but Gideon somehow managed to track him down more than 40 years later. Let's leave it to Gideon to put some flesh on these bare bones. Pat's an unusual cricketer in Australia. He's, you know, he's a, an avowedly uh, working class cricketer. You know, he's one of six children to a railway ganger from Dubbo. You don't get much more plebeian than that. Uh, so in a sense, he was just proclaimed as a cricketer by his physique and his pace uh, at a period when Australia was actually quite strong in pace bowling with Lindwall, Miller, Johnson, Davidson, Archer. So he was, you know, he had to work very hard to force his way to, a, to that front rank. Took 67 wickets in his first two seasons. So, you know, in a period where Sheffield Shield wickets were pretty, pretty doped and uh, new balls didn't do very much without a lot of coaxing, he was, he was clearly very successful. He was very tall. He's 185 centimetres, super fit, you know, looked like an absolute Adonis figure, 76 kilograms, broad shoulders, uh, 
handsome to look at. There was a fantastic profile of him done by Pix magazine in about 1955, where he uh, posed for photos and went through his action. And it looks looks magnificent. You know, his mm-hmm. huge front foot stride, big drag, swung the ball quite a lot, super fit, worked as an x-ray technician um, at a Sydney hospital, but gave that job up when he started to take his, his cricket seriously. Came to, uh, to England in 55, played for East Lancashire. While he was there, he, um, he met a girl in Blackburn called Sheila Wormby and uh, married her, brought her back to Sydney to, to live. Managed to get himself on the 1956 tour of, of England. A bit ingenuous, Pat. Apparently didn't realise that wives and husbands couldn't travel together or if he did, didn't make sort of particularly serious inquiries about it. They were spotted together on the Himalaya when it went from Sydney round to Melbourne. And at uh, Melbourne, the manager, uh, Bill Dowling, gave them the advice that really, you know, they um, uh, just because one was travelling first class and one was travelling second class didn't actually mean that they weren't together. So they put poor hapless Sheila off the boat in Melbourne and she was forced to travel separately to, to England on the, on the Strathaird that followed a week later. It was Richie Benner who pointed out the weirdness of uh, the, the two ships apparently spotted each other in the Mediterranean. So it was realised that the uh, husband was travelling on one ship, wife was travelling on another, and it wouldn't have actually mattered whether, uh, whether Pat had his mistress on the, uh, on the Himalaya with him. That would not have transgressed his, uh, his tour contract, but, his, uh, but having his wife along did. The, the tour was ill-omened for him. He probably wouldn't have been in the starting 11 to, uh, to begin with because Lindwall and Miller would have had dibs on, on those positions. Did manage to get himself into the Lord's Test match when Lindwall and Davidson were not fit, but of course broke down after four or five overs and uh, played no part in the rest of the match, apart from a brief spell at the, uh, at the crease when he batted. And the weird thing was that, you know, he, he was allowed to see his wife, but they weren't actually allowed to stay together under the same roof for the duration of the tour, despite the fact that she was pregnant. But Pat, I don't know whether it was the fact that he was recounting these events to me 40 years later, didn't seem to have taken them all that much to heart. You know, that was just <laughs> the reality that he'd, that he'd kind of come to terms with. And his teammates observed that he seemed to be okay about this. So mm-hmm. it wasn't altogether surprising when at the end of the trip, Sheila decided that she wasn't going to come back to Australia with him. Uh, having had the child in the, in the UK, was just going to stay there. And Pat never saw his son again. So an eventful two summers in England for Pat, you might say. In the first, he met his wife. And in the second, he lost her plus his newborn son. Life was progressing at quite a pace. It didn't seem to affect his cricket too much. Aside from bowling only 29 balls in his only Ashes test, he played plenty of other cricket in those two years. He took 78 wickets at 13 for East Lanks in 55 and 31 first-class wickets at 26 for the Australians in 1956. But let's get back to Gideon and find out more about Pat and how Gideon managed to track him down. When I was doing the research for the summer game, he was a kind of a fascinating, enigmatic figure. No one had heard of him for 30, 40 years since he'd kind of disappeared from the, from the game. I can't remember how I ended up getting his contact details, but I was just given a, a telephone number. It wasn't even, I don't think it was even explained to me where it was, but it was in a town called Miranda, a few hours outside of Sydney. And, uh, you know, the phone answered and explained who I was and, Pat told me to come and see him. I got out to Miranda, went out there on the train. You know, he didn't live in 
poverty, but he certainly didn't live in splendor. It was a kind of a small weatherboard house that looked as though it hadn't seen a lick of paint in about 20 years. And, you know, there was nothing there to proclaim, certainly nothing there to proclaim that there was a former test cricketer living there. I knew nothing about the circumstances of his England tour until he started to tell me. It seemed as though he'd not spoken about cricket for a very, very long time. And it seemed very remarkable to be talking to someone who no one had seen for, uh, for, for so long. Although at the same time, it was strangely quite vividly recalled because at his peak, he was very, very fast and very, mm. very impressive. He explained to me that when he came back from England in 1956, he had no job. And he got a taxation demand on his, on his tour fee, uh, which he had no money to pay. So he basically just gave up cricket, hit the road, went around doing sort of itinerant labouring, sold Bibles for a while in country New South Wales, sold windmills, ended up working in a bottle a bottle shop in, in Miranda in 1963, where he met a woman called Nona Hayes, who was a few years his senior. And they became de facto's because, of course, Pat, being Catholic, had never had his marriage annulled. Right. So they lived in sin for the rest of Pat's life. She was a very charming lady and she prepared us tomato sandwiches for, uh, for, for lunch on white bread with sugar, a bit of an Australian <laughs> staple. And she actually said, she sort of sat in on some of the interview and she said, you know, these are the first time I've ever heard some of these stories of, of mm. Pat. I knew he played cricket, but I had no idea the circumstances under which he'd done it. And I do remember at the end of the interview, I said to Pat, look, do you have any mementos of your career? Do you have any um, tokens? Do you have any blazers or caps or, or anything like that? And he said, I've got this. And he handed over to me a tiny envelope, small, a, a, an unusually small sized envelope, which just had handwritten on it cricket. And it was a few cutout scores from the Lancashire League. It was that PIX profile that I, that I mentioned before, which had been folded up so many times that it was kind of falling apart. And maybe a couple of photos, but that was it. That was all he had to show for his entire cricket career. And he offered to lend it to me. And I said, Pat, it's so small. I feel, I feel terrible taking it off your hands. You know, you yeah. could trust me, but I, but I wouldn't want you to be parted from it. So... I went on my way with this story, which no one had previously heard. And I don't think anyone else heard directly from Pat's lips in, in the rest of his life. Did he cherish that envelope, even though there was hardly anything in it? Well, I think it had just become just an object. I don't yeah. think he was really nostalgic about his cricket. Uh -huh. Although once he got telling stories, you know, he was quite animated about it. He remembered, for instance playing in that very famous game against South Australia in 55-6, I think it was, where Miller took the seven for 12 and Pat took the other three at the other end for 15. And it was a great, you know, they bowled South Australia out for 26 and it was a memorable thing to have been part of. And he remembered the kindness of players like Arthur Morris in that New South Wales side who'd, who'd really looked after him. It didn't seem to trouble him that no one had ever gone looking for him he'd had an offer of a contract from Kent to mm. come over in 1957 to play county cricket, but that when the Suez crisis happened and there was the possibility that he might be conscripted if he got to England, 
Kent went cold on the idea. And in fact, Pat didn't end up playing in 56-7, barely at all in the, in, the, in the home summer. So he probably wouldn't have been fit to, uh, to fulfil that contract anyway. And he wasn't angry or bitter at all about the way he'd been treated? No, it was just something that had happened to him uh, yeah. in the course of his life. He did remember going to the New South Wales Cricket Association to sort of seek some sort of help immediately post that career because he didn't have the money to meet this, this taxation demand. And he said he remembered saying to them that he was a professional cricketer and the sort of the board member, he couldn't remember who it was, sort of scoffing and saying, well, in Australia, there's no such thing as a professional cricketer. And that, I guess, was the prevailing attitude at the time. What did he think about leaving his son in England? Seemed um, kind of... I said, had he ever tried to make contact with Sheila? And mm. he just seemed to have been so completely discombobulated and yeah. disoriented by the end of his career. And the fact that he got this feeling that he needed to be on the move that he let all his other, his previous connections mm. slide. Once your book came out and his story was, was out there, so to speak, did, do you think any other people got in contact with him? Any old teammates? I, I, I do think he came to some sort of reunion that was put together mm. of old Ashes cricketers in the late 1990s, maybe, as a reason, mm. because I remember them getting in contact with me to get his contact details. And I suspect that would have been the first time in more than 40 years that most of his teammates had seen him. Ian Chappell told us that playing for Ramsbottom improved his drinking and swearing and put his cricket back about six months. Cricket seemed like the least of Pat's problems following his time in the Lancashire League. Many thanks to Gideon Hay for guiding us through Pat's story. And if you haven't already, do get your hands on the summer game at your earliest opportunity. It's a fascinating snapshot of 50s and 60s Aussie cricket and Aussie life in general. OK then, it's time to move up the coast to Queensland and to check in with our latest inductee into the Once Upon a Time in the Ashes Hall of Fame. Ross Duncan was a right-arm swing bowler who played Sheffield Shield cricket from 1964 to 1972 predominantly for his home state of Queensland. In the 1970-71 season, he was the leading wicket-taker in Shield cricket with 34 wickets at 19.52, including 13 wickets against Victoria. This led to him being selected for the fifth test of the 1970-71 Ashes series at the MCG. Ross, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Oh, thank you. Really good to speak to you. You played club and shield cricket with Tony Dell. He played his one and only Ashes test in that series as well, in the, in the last test, the seventh test. That's right. And he told me that you made your debuts for East together. Oh, you're going back a bit far there. But, yeah. Um, if, if, if Tony said it, it'd be right. Do you remember playing in the same side as him at East? Oh, yes. Uh, we played together, yeah. How was that? You obviously became good mates over the years. A lot of time for Tony, yeah. Yeah, he went to Vietnam and all that. And so he had a, a lot of things to sort of put behind him. But yeah, no, Tony came out very well in front of it. This is what he had to say about your bowling. I mean, if you want to talk about reverse swing, he was using reverse swing in the early 60s, long before any of these Pakistanis. He just did it. And it was just a matter of he just waited the ball with tons and tons of perspiration and, and just managed to go the other way. Would you say that was accurate? And how did you develop your swing bowling? 
being perfectly honest, it was an accident. Um, <laughs> I did put plenty of perspiration on the ball. That, that's that's, uh, and then I realised that it wasn't swinging the way I wanted it to swing the other way. So once you work that out, then it was only a matter of bowling the correct line that would allow that swing to uh, have the most effect. But I mean, swing bowling is quite an art, isn't it? Was there somebody who taught you how to do that when you were first starting out? I had talks with, because everybody's a little bit different, and I had talks with uh, Ray Lindwell. Ray used to come to practice uh, with us when I first started. He was a wonderful help. Slasher Mackay was very helpful. Even though Slasher was medium pace, he could swing the ball. Yeah, I guess a lot of it's trial and error too. You work with the position of the, the ball in your fingers and some gives better swing than others and you remember that. But I, I guess it's a, it's a learning experience and I was always keen to, to listen to players that had gone before me sort of thing. What are your first memories of watching and playing cricket as a young lad? They used to uh, have a, um, a coaching session at the Gabba and they'd have the Queensland side take the coaching sessions. So I used to catch the bus down and go to those coaching sessions and I learned a lot from them, from the different players. They'd talk about what skills they had. Then you'd try and adapt them at home in the, in the backyard. I guess that's my first memories with, with cricket. At school, we had a fellow, that, Johnny May, and he was a wicketkeeper for Eastern Suburbs A grade. So he virtually got me to come to East after I finished school. But Johnny was a big help. He would talk about things. But I guess you really need other bowlers to talk about what they're doing. What about Ashes cricket? When, when did you first become aware of Ashes cricket? My father was an avid uh, radio listener. So I, I listened to Ashes tests when they were played in other states. But when it was in Queensland, the Gabba, you could catch a bus to the Gabba and, and watch the test there. There wouldn't have been too many I missed, I don't think. Who were your favourite players growing up? I grew up in the time of Keith Miller and Ray Lindwell and those who never dreaming that I'd ever meet them. They were heroes of mine. I guess, yeah, as time went on, they made themselves available and uh, you had, had the chance to meet them later on. They're very sharing. There's, I, I didn't meet any cricketer that, or that was not willing to share any information that they had. You were pretty young when you started out. I was looking through the records and I think you... You made your debut for Queensland when you were 20, didn't you? So uh, 19, yeah. 19, was it? Mm. How, how did that come about? I, I don't think there was too many bowlers that wanted to bowl into the wind. Do you remember your debut for Queensland? Uh, yeah, I do. We played Western Australia. I was lucky enough to get five wickets in that game, so that sort of helped a bit. Peter Allen took the other five wickets in that first innings because you quite often opened the bowling with him and I I've spoken to him for this series as well so All right. what, what was Peter like and what did you learn from him? Peter was a Queenslander then he went to Victoria and he played cricket for Victoria for I think he might have played the second 11 for Victoria he was like the senior statesman um, if you had an idea you'd run it through because I was only a kid and I'd talk about it with Peter um, he was gun fast bowler that we had but again, he was always willing to share any, any, anything that he would. But Peter was a very different type bowler to me. He basically bowled the outswingers and he was definitely a lot quicker. So you made your debut 64-65. Peter was called up for that Ashes test the following season, 65-66. Right. Did that make you think, hang on, maybe I've got a chance of playing for Australia? Was, did you think that was on the horizon at all? 
No, I didn't. No, no. And I don't think anybody else did either. So you didn't feel you were in the frame for 65, 66, or even the tour to England in 68? No, you always hope. Sort of got the paper and had a quick read, and, but I was never there. So, um, yeah, I figured I still had a fair bit to learn. When I first started, I swung the ball in, and that was it. I didn't have an outswing, and it took me well, three years, I suppose, before um, I uh, developed an outswing. Then I could swing the ball both ways, which was a big advantage. Let's have a look at the 70-71 season then, because this was a great season for you, and obviously this led to your Ashes test. I said in the intro that you, you were the lead in wicket-taker in Shield cricket, so you obviously in incredible form that season. What, what happened? Did everything just click into place? Yeah, I, I guess that's probably a fair comment. Probably just about then I developed an outswing. I had an outswing and an inswing, which uh, it was very handy when bowling to left-handers. I think that was when I sort of bowled my best. I, I went to Rockhampton, which is about uh, 350k up the coast. Mm-hmm. And I played cricket in Rockhampton. I was playing in Rockhampton when I got selected for Australia. It was just a little country town. I think I probably didn't have the weight of bowling that I had with eastern suburbs. And so I was a lot fresher when I played that season. What would you say were your best performances for Queensland that season? Oh, it's hard to say. Sometimes you got wickets and sometimes you didn't. I thought I was bowling around about where I wanted to bowl. The outy was around about off stump and the innie was just outside off stump. And I was able to put them where I wanted to. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I was very happy with that. But yeah. I had that trouble with my heel then too. So um, that was unfortunate. But anyway. Yeah. So I read about your injury. So when did that, did that flare up during that season or did you have it prior to that? Probably the season beforehand. I tried everything to try and get rid of it uh, from injections and stuff. The heel grew a spur. Although I, I think your body makes that so that you don't damage yourself greatly i couldn't put my left foot down when i was bowling and that made it very difficult well that was incredible you came through that seat you know leading shield wicket taker despite being hampered by that injury yes it stuck around for, for, for the rest of my career actually and then i had it operated on when i finished the doctors in rockhampton cut the spur off so most games you were playing through pain were you or just pain at the end of the oh, day just in the last last couple of years yeah well, the two games prior to your Ashes test that I thought were interesting, there was obviously that game against Victoria where you took the 13 wickets. That would definitely be the best, yeah. And again, what, what was the key that day? Was it really conducive to swing bowling or were you just in a, a good frame of mind? No, just one of those things. I think the ball moved and moved late. Whether I was doing something or the ball was doing something, I don't know. It was just one of those things that happened, you know. And what did you make of the, the England touring party? Because you played against the MCC in November, I saw, for Queensland. That's right, in Brisbane, yeah. What did you make of the team and how did you go that day? They were very solid. They were you know, um, very solid with the, their opening <laughs> partnerships. Yeah, I hadn't played them beforehand. They just seemed a very strong unit. I think I saw in the record books you took the wicket of Dolivera in that match against Basil, the MCC. Yeah. yeah, that's not a bad wicket, is it? Well, you must have been unlucky, I think. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Would you think that Victoria match where you took those 13 wickets, is that what got you in contention for the Test Series? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I'd sort of been thereabouts for quite a while. And I guess as a swing bowler, when you move it, move it both ways, you've got to get your lines right. I guess it was starting to come together then. 
and Mahil was an, a bit of an issue, but I was playing with with that. Probably a lot of factors. It's it's not just one. It's it's, it's everything, but everything that came together on that day in Victoria. Anyway, you yeah. were picked for the fifth test. That's in, right in Melbourne. So how did that come about? How did you find out you'd been selected? I think I probably heard on the news. Was that quite a celebration when you found that out? It, it was. It was. It was. Yeah. Oh, it's a wonderful thrill. Sort of don't think it's going to happen. And then um, I guess they wandered into the wind bowl or two. And it was in Melbourne. So I had played in Melbourne. And you came in for Graham McKenzie, is that right? Yeah, for, for, for Graham. So what happened next then? Flew into Melbourne and went to practice. I was very worried about my heel because the heel had blown up in that game against... Well, I was played for Queensland just before I got on the plane and the heel played and I didn't know what, what to do, whether to pull out or whether to play or what to do. And I thought I'd, I'd, I would play. And um, yeah, certainly wasn't an easy decision anyway. I just didn't want to let me body down. I got to know Bill pretty well, Bill Laurie, uh, when I was playing with Victoria and I just didn't want to let him down, that's all. No, of course not. But what did you make of Bill as a captain? Um... Bill was sort of a led by example type man. He ton of guts because Bill used to come up and stay with us in Mil. In, when I was in Mildura, Victoria, I wasn't in Melbourne. I was actually in Mildura. Bill used to race pigeons, and he'd never ever seen them take off. He'd only ever seen them land. Mildura's three hundred fifty mile away from Melbourne, so that was the first time he'd seen pigeons. His pigeons actually uh, race from the, the showground at uh, Mildura. Right. So I got to know Bill fairly well. Were you aware of everything that was happening behind the scenes? Did you have any inkling that that would be Bill's, what, penultimate test? No, I didn't. No, no it's all a bit of a boo. I was pretty worried <laughs> with my ankle, so I, with my foot. So I, was, I guess I had other things to worry about. So just looking at the match, the Australia batted first and you scored 493. You did bat, and I think you were batting with Rod Marsh, weren't you? I came into bat with Rodney, yeah. Was he a bit unhappy because Bill Laurie declared when he was on 92 not out? <laughs> I, I, I don't think, no. I, I think the papers sort of put that. He didn't seem to worry about that particular no. point. Bill had a definite thing in mind that he told everybody that he wanted to, re- to declare at a certain time. When that time arose, that was it. So that declaration, I think that was on, the game started on the Thursday, so that was the Friday. So you got to have a bowl then on the second day in the evening. How did that feel to get the ball in your hand for Australia? Oh, it was a great thrill. I was, just, I was more worried about the, the heel, whether it would stand up, that was all. And how did you bowl and how did the injury stand up? Oh, yeah, I've, I had it operated on when I, when I finished the test. I sat the last bit out. In the test, the last second, the second innings. So Bill was one short. I felt badly for him, but he, he, you know, uh, I went back to Rockhampton and had it operated on then. So when you bowled in the first innings, it was just getting worse and worse, was it? And then you realised you couldn't bowl in the second. Yeah. Well, as I say, I mean, the game finishes a draw, doesn't it? With I mean, the batsmen were were dominating it, it that did, match. Yeah. Did you have a beer after the game with uh, the Australian and the English players, or were you too concerned about your injury and sorting that out? Oh no, no. Never too, too concerned. I'm not to have a beer. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> no, I had a beer and uh, we were staying at, at the hotel not very far from the ground. So that was, that was handy. And, and the players mixed very well. So. 
And do you think Ian was the right choice for to be next Australia captain? Was did all the players think he was the obvious choice? Uh, very much so. Yeah, I, I like playing under Bill too. Uh, they're very different captains. Very different captains. Um, Ian would talk to you about the game, whereas Bill would sort of if you weren't bowling well, he'd take off. But Ian had sort of you know, would you like to try this? Would you try that? Yeah, they're just very different captains, that's all. So then, from your point of view, then you had to go and have this operation to sort this heel out. Did that mean you were completely out of contention for the, for the remaining two tests? Yeah, I think, I think they, yeah. Did you play again that season for Queensland? No. All oh, right, so that no, was Queen, it. Queensland made, played Victoria in the Sheffield Shield final, but I, I wasn't able to get in. I still okay. had my leg in plaster. So how did that operation go? How long were you in plaster for? Oh, not long. A not long. month, I suppose. And then were you back again bowling the following season or did it linger yeah, on? Yeah, the following season I played for Queensland again. Yeah, then I got transferred to Victoria. How big a move was that? Because you, you'd played for Queensland all your life and then suddenly you were off to Victoria. I played in Rockhampton and then in Victoria I was in Mildura, which is on the Murray, up, right up the north end of Victoria. They were different. In Queensland, you could be selected from the country, but mm. Victoria, you had to play for the a Melbourne team. So that's when I played for Peran. You'd have to travel down to play for them, would you? Yeah, I'd travel down each Friday and then um, play Saturday and then come home Sunday. How far away was that then? That was quite a journey, was it? Oh, 350k. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, dro- yeah. I drove down there. So, that, so we're up to, yeah, 71, 72. And... Obviously, you played for Victoria as well. You took 21 wickets at 25. So, again, you had another good season for them to follow up your, yeah. your season with Queensland, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And then the next Ashes tour was the 72 one to England. Did you feel close to being selected for that? Well, you're always hopeful. <laughs> yeah. But, um, no. Did you ever play any cricket in England? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. My son... Uh, Played cricket. Uh, he was over there, and I went over to visit him. We played a game um, on. Oh, it was a lovely uh, game on, on a. What was the name of the club? It was called Hampton Week. It was right on the the ground of Hampton Palace. You know, the Henry VIII's Palace. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they had all deer on the oval, and uh, they were Henry's deer, and <laughs> it was yeah, it was very interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's a good place to play cricket, isn't it? Yeah. How did you get on that day? Take any wickets? Oh, I've got a couple, I think. Yeah. yeah, of course you did. Of course you did. <laughs> okay, and back to 1972. What happened at the end of that season? I got transferred um, at, at the end of the cricket season, transferred to Mackay, 200 miles further up than, than Rockhampton. And you played some club cricket there as well, did you, for Mackay? Yeah, I played club cricket then with, with, with Mackay. Yeah. But then, yeah, I don't think you played any more Shield games for Queensland. No, no. No, no. no I retired when I went up, up there. Yeah. Why then did you decide to retire? Was that because of the injury? Or? No, it wasn't the injury. The injury was pretty right. Uh, they'd, they'd operated and cut the piece of uh, bone out that was causing the problem. You know, you've got to work for a living and the job that I had was fairly demanding, so I wasn't able to give time to both. Who were you working for at the time? Uh, MLC, probably about the second biggest company in, in, in Australia. AMP had been the biggest. Okay, so that was it for Shield cricket, but you continued to play club cricket then, did you, for, for some years after that? Yeah, I did. I, well, I enjoyed cricket and I, yeah. I, I enjoyed playing club cricket. I played club cricket until I was probably 40, yeah. All for Mackay then, was it? 
Yeah, in Mackay. Did you still stay involved with cricket once you stopped playing club cricket? Yeah, I was a country selector then. And the, I used to coach, we used to coach the lads in a, in a country at, at Rockhampton. So uh, for the next few years, I was involved with, with the, you know, organising coaching camps. Craig right. McDermott came through that. There were some quite good lads. Craig McDermott? Well, he did all right in the end, so yeah. And he, was he, a, he did all right in the end. <laughs> yeah. And how do you look back on it now? How do you look back on playing test cricket for Australia? Did, when you play that one test, did you think that was going to be your only test or did you think you deserved to play again? Oh, it wasn't a case that deserved to play again, but um, yeah, I was prepared to play again. I, I, I really didn't know. I was, I was in two minds. I had the sore heel and I was struggling with that. I knew I... Probably if I played that one, I couldn't play the next one because the damage it would do to the heel. Do you regret not saying more about the injury or do you think you should have pulled out of that game or do you think you made the right decision? No, it's hard to say. I wouldn't have. Um, I, I thought I'd get an injection and it would be numb, but uh, it, it, it wasn't quite that easy because mm. um, they said that the danger is that your foot would go and then if I bowled without some protection um <laughs> they felt that if the leg went during the game you wouldn't be able to play and that would leave bill with one fast bowler short uh, it was hard do you, do you put up with it do you, what do you, what do you do you know it was, yeah. a, it was a very hard decision but all in all what did it mean to you to play in the ashes oh it was it's a, a terrific thrill that to be, to be selected particularly in the team that i uh, think because I played against all the players for a number of years and I knew how good they were. It, it, it was a great thrill. I think Graham McKenzie was a better bowler than me. There's no question about that. I, anyway, selectors do what they do. You were the leading wicket taker that season, so I think you more yeah, than that, merited that your place. The, the thing I think that uh, got me in. I, I was really, I was bowling well. But for the sixth test, obviously you were injured and unavailable to play, but they brought in Dennis Lilly. So that was That's quite right. a good decision, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and what then Dennis you... got injured the next year and I took his place in the Australian side against the rest of the world. It was a bit hard to keep out. And maybe it wasn't an officially recognised test series, but that was a star-studded World Eleven, captained by Sobers and featuring the likes of Sunil Gavaskar, Graham Pollock and Bishan Beatty. You can understand Ross's dilemma ahead of his Ashes debut. Do you play through the pain? knowing that this could be your one and only chance to make an impression in Test cricket? Or do you reluctantly drop out and risk never being picked again? At least Ross could return to international cricket the following summer and play that one unofficial test against the World Eleven, a match in which he took his one wicket for Australia, having Tony Gregg out LBW. And if that wasn't enough to secure a place to England in 1972, then playing at Bushy Park for Hampton Wick with your son Sounds like a decent second prize to me. And that's just about all we've got time for today, folks. A big thank you to our excellent guests, Gideon Hay and Ross Duncan. And a big thank you to you too for listening. We've been starved of English one Ashes Test Wonders in recent episodes, but we're going to correct that next time around when Graham Barlow is in the hot seat. Although I found him in Australia, thankfully he was slightly easier to track down than Pat Crawford. Graham is on superb form and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to his stories. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. <laughs> <laughs>